A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit KellyBlueBook.com to get the journey started. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. And we are in the studio together. I've never been this excited to come to a workspace. They they said this day would never come, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ben. Uh, we both were laughing very hard a minute ago when you called me to be like, what what is the office address I again? I forgot where this was. I like drove 30 <laughs> minutes from my house in Venice, got into the neighborhood, and I was like, I don't even remember the name of the street. <laughs> it's been like, a year and a half. The muscle um, memory is gone. It's gone. It's gone. It wow. was gone. And it wasn't even in my maps, right? Because I haven't been right. there in so long. So. Well. We're reverse Bo Burnaming. Yes, we're we're, we're moving outside. This yes, feels we're good. Moving outside, and it it does. It feels very good to to be in any kind of workspace other than the room I've been sitting in forever. Yeah, I mean, in this in, since I've last seen you, you've uh, had to try to teach school. I'm sure that was maybe harder than writing another bestseller. I mean, if I think about, I I I, I taught a class. I wrote a book. I recorded a podcast, Missing America, in my closet. Right. You know, so that I had the good audio quality and I was angry coming in the studio thinking like how easy it would have been to record that podcast if I could have just sat in a professional studio instead of being in a closet with like a kit and yeah. somebody in my ear. So, I forgot you taught a college class. I just meant like trying to teach elementary school to two little kids. Oh, that. Well, that. Forget that. Yeah. I mean, the, the hardest thing that happened in the entire pandemic, and I think, you know, this is universal parents is like a, a four and a six year old on Zoom school. I mean, the four year old was not. Wanting to, Chloe was like, "This no, is not. It's not happening." And she's right. I she's mean, a smart kid. Yeah. She's like, "Where are my friends? Yeah, yeah. Where are the fun teachers? You exactly. guys are boring me." Yeah, I don't need you over my shoulder helping me with this art project. No, thank you very much. <laughs> go away. Go away. Go, go, go away, Dad. Go read about authoritarians <laughs> yeah, yeah, or whatever go, you do. For go fun. work on your authoritarianism, <laughs> Dad. I want to pick. I want to paint a picture. Well, much like Bo Burnham, we're going to make you guys some sweet, sweet content today. Uh, we have a ton to cover. There is uh, the worst civil unrest in South Africa since apartheid ended. New details about the shady for-profit spying industry and how it's being used to target journalists, activists, others. Ben, I know you have some experience with these yes. uh, creeps. Some climate change news, uh, updates out of Haiti and Cuba, the space race, big update there this morning, if you give a shit, mm -hmm. uh, and a pretty gross Australian mystery, and then some fun Olympic updates. And then, Ben, you just wrapped today's interview. What are folks going to hear? I mean, I, I really uh, love this interview. It's with Mohammed Sultan. Um, Great guy. Those world, those who uh, listened to Missing America or read my book, Mohammed is, is, a, is a key character in it. But he was someone who's an Egyptian-American who had moved back to be part of the protest in Tahrir Square. When the CC coup happened, he was in the protest against that. He was shot in the square. He was arrested for tweeting, basically. Um, tortured. He walks you through some of his ordeal in prison. Um, he gets out and becomes a human rights activist, and he talks about his motivation for his work, which is very inspiring in this interview. But recently, the head of Egyptian intelligence, who's kind of Sisi's right-hand man, came to Washington, the first kind of high-ranking member of the Sisi government since Biden got elected, and basically 
demanded that Muhammad be thrown in prison in the United States and yeah, said no, that no. somehow, you know, it's totally the, 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 the impunity you must feel to do that, you know? So, so he takes us through this kind of the latest episode in his, in his saga. Um, and it's very powerful. I'm genuinely horrified to think uh, about how that demand might have landed in the Trump White House, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought about that. I mean, it may be that Trump was so in kind of, you know, in their pocket in a way that they didn't need to kind of press the envelope. You know, now they're kind of almost challenging the Biden team. You know, to me, it's almost like, hey, look what we're willing to do. You know, are you going to you going to withhold our three hundred million dollars in military assistance? Um, so I hope I hope the answer is yes, we are going to do that. Well, let's we'll see. Stick around for that interview because uh, it's very important stuff and it kind of dovetails with a lot of what we're talking it does, about. It today. does. It yeah. does. Especially that Pegasus story. Yes. Yeah. Especially the spying story. OK, so let's start in South Africa because, uh, you know, people in eastern uh, South Africa are, are slowly recovering from days of violence and looting that left hundreds dead. Uh, more than 2,500 arrests and hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. So this violence started on July 8th after former South African President Jacob Zuma was arrested and sentenced to 15 months in prison for refusing to testify before a commission investigating government corruption. But it quickly ballooned into widespread ransacking of malls, other retail stores, and then there was a bunch of arson and just destruction of warehouses and factories. And it's been described, the violence, as the worst since South Africa became a democracy in 1994. And it only ended after current South African president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, deployed 25,000 South African troops to restore order. Uh, South Africa's economy has been just devastated by the coronavirus. Unemployment is over 33%. The country is in the midst of its third COVID lockdown, but I believe unemployment benefits have run out, so people are really desperate. Uh, it could take years to rebuild these businesses, the infrastructure. There's concern that all these people gathering together could lead to another spike in COVID cases. So just devastating news here for the people of South Africa who are, you know, I, I didn't realize it's been, according to, uh, I think it's the World Bank, one of these international bodies, South Africa has the worst economic inequality of any country yeah. in the world, period. Yeah. And it's gotten worse since apartheid. Yeah, which has some of its roots in apartheid. And then in the post-apartheid corruption. Um, and, and to me, you know, this is a story that speaks to kind of the nexus of corruption with other societal problems because Zuma was, you know, Jacob Zuma was the president before Ramaphosa, just phenomenally corrupt. I mean, you know, billions and billions, basically treated his position as head of the ANC and president as a, as a way to enrich himself. I think there's a lot of suspicion that after he was uh, sentenced, you know, he kind of, his people kind of ginned up some people to get out and protest. And then that clearly blended in with a lot of grievances that are already out there over the scale of inequality COVID has been particularly difficult. They've had, you know, they had the beta variant there. They, they've had a hard time with that. Um, but this kind of combination of a sense that government is not only not solving the problem, but has been part of the problem, right? right? You know, and, and Ramaphosa has tried to kind of turn the page a bit. And just the very fact of the prosecution going forward of Zuma is a sign of introducing some accountability to the system. But, but unless they kind of get their arms around this massive corruption in society, their capacity to deal with things like inequality and and, and having a, a fair economy is going to be much harder. So I think it also speaks to one other thing, Tommy, which is COVID. You know, we're our economy is booming here and, right. you know, feels great. And, you know, oh, the worst concern is inflation in, in South Africa type countries. Or you see in Indonesia, for instance, now a big wave like we're not out of the woods and there's going to be potential political instability uh, and, and huge ripple effects from COVID all over the developing world, including in fairly developed societies like 
South Africa, for instance, um, you know, this is this is going to be with us for a while. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned this. Ramaphosa called the unrest a coordinated effort to sabotage the economy and essentially stage a coup. Um, to your broader point about Zuma and the ANC, I mean, the, the ANC, his political party, has been in power since 1994. There's yeah. basically no real uh, opposition. Corruption's gotten worse. Inequality has gotten worse. And it's just, uh, it's hard to tell exactly where the tipping point was from sort of like political allies staging something to create unrest to just this broader thing that encompassed uh, basically it was two of the nine provinces in South Africa were basically just, you know, destroyed. I mean, and they account for nearly 50% of GDP. Yeah. So it's yeah. a really big deal. Yeah. And it. I mean, the ANC issued more broadly. I mean, everybody remembers the heroic history of the ANC and Nelson Mandela's leadership. And Mandela himself stepping down instead of trying to stay in power forever, like a lot of people around the world do. But it's gotten kind of progressively worse up through Zuma, where you look, when you have a one-party system, that opens up a lot of doors for potential corruption. And guys like Zuma, you know, kind of traded on the legitimacy of their history as part of that struggle, tragically, to just kind of enrich themselves. Yeah. You know, and hopefully Ramaphosa, he seems to be um, a, a, a more on the level character, but um, there's just a, a competitive political environment would be healthy there uh, so that there isn't this kind of sense of impunity. Yeah. Ben, I was trying to do a bunch of reading on this. So I was reading like from Jacobin on the left and then I yeah. clicked on a Fox News story. It was Laura Ingraham and talking to Laura Logan, who's a correspondent who I believe is South African. Laura Logan tried to blame what was happening in South Africa on critical race theory woke ideology and tech companies. And then she goes, and Obama's former ambassador to South Africa, Patrick Gaspard, now works for George Soros. It was like oh the God. Fox fever dream. Yeah, they just wow. saw like video of, of violence or, or unrest. And they decided like, well, let's take this and make it about the United States and try to scare old white people once again. It was that just is, disgusting. That's really dark. <laughs> Super <laughs> like dark. That, that's, if that's your first reaction, because like, none of that is connected to what's happening. Critical there. race yeah. theory? What yeah. the fuck are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. I mean, it just shows, you know, images of black and brown people in the streets. It doesn't matter where they are, whether they're in the United States or anywhere in the real world. Let's just play those and play the greatest hits, right? Like, yep. we'll, we'll go after George Soros. You know, we'll go after... Yep. Obama somehow, yeah. you know, cap where Patrick Gaspar now works. Like it's, <laughs> what it's else? totally insane. Yeah. yeah, the DLC. Let's throw some more in there. Yeah, let's yeah, go. Yeah, what do we got? Yeah. Ugh, disgusting. Um, okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that story. Uh, but let's talk about spying for profit. So there were a, a bunch of blockbuster reports this week. There's an Israeli company called the NSO Group that has been leasing military-grade surveillance technology to governments, and they've been using it to hack phones belonging to journalists, human rights activists, and even to women who are close to Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was murdered by the Saudi government. Uh, this comes, this report, it was like 17 news outlets and like a French nonprofit called Forbidden Stories who got all this information and put it out. And it's worth reading these reports in full because the Post and others are just like cranking out reams and reams of stories. But a couple of things I took away. One, the software is being used against private citizens, the claim by the company that yeah. it's like against terrorists bullshit. and criminals. Bullshit. <laughs> Nonsense. Total bullshit. Two, those of us who have iPhones, you ain't safe. Yeah. Uh, they're generally considered more secure, but this software could gain access to everything on an iPhone, emails, calls, passwords, location, data, pictures. Great. Bad news. Bad news. Three, you victims, you, you like, sometimes when people get are victims of a phishing attack, you think, oh, you idiot. How do you click on that, right? In this case, you don't have to click on a link. They can just text you something. You might never know about it. You can be infected, not do anything. So it's like everyone could be a victim. Yeah. So- Again, lots of the story. But here's some things that really bug me, Ben. Um, 
So the NSO group was founded by former Israeli intelligence mm-hmm. goons, right? Yeah. They worked for their version of the NSA doing signals intelligence. The Israeli government reportedly signs off on all their licenses. So when Hungary gets a license, yeah. the Israeli government signs off on this. The U.S. subsidizes the entire enterprise, right? Because yeah. we give $3 billion a year yeah. in military aid to Israel sure do. Uh, and help prop up the Israeli defense industry. Like the Iron Dome missile defense system, good purchase. This, very bad purchase. And so he- here's my problem. Like the net effect here is that tyrants like Viktor Orban, the authoritarian leader of Hungary, who you've written about a lot, can spy on journalists. The, the, the Indian government can spy on activists, maybe like Rana Ayub. Yeah. I don't know that to be the case. That's not in our interests, right? And, and so, like, the concerns about this software, this company aren't new. Um, I'm sure listeners are probably listening to this and thinking, hey, you guys worked for, like, the U.S. government. The U.S. government spies on more people than anyone else. You're full of shit. You're hypocrites. You know what? Fine. But, like, a bunch of companies selling spyware for profit is a very slippery slope to me. And, and I'm just wondering, what did you make of these reports? And do you think that we're going to pressure the Israeli government to say, shut this down? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts on this. And, and one is to play back the tape, right? And, and I do, I talk about this a lot in After the Fall. Um, you know, I learned that I was spied on by Black Cube. You know, so Black Cube is a bunch of former Mossad guys, and they also had spied on Harvey Weinstein's accusers, right? Um, so, you know, if Mossad is kind of the CIA and NSO is the NSA, it's like these guys just leave and set up private shop. Yeah. Um, and what was interesting working on in my book, when I went to Hungary, Two of the people I met with in Hungary um, had a connection to being spied on by Black Cube. Shandor Lederer, one of the main uh, characters in Hungary, his cousin had been spied on by Black Cube and worked for Marta Pardavi, another person whose organization was spied on by Black Cube. And and then I talked to Navalny and he'd been spied on by Black Cube. And there was like this international community of of people. If If you're an NGO activist or a former official like me or an anti corruption person or what have you, like, Suddenly, you know, we should just expect that an autocrat or an oligarch is paying like a bunch of former Mossad guys to, to spy on you or intimidate you or surveil you. And it, it led me to kind of investigate more this question of this private intelligence industry where any autocrat or any o- oligarch associated with an autocrat can go kind of one stop shopping for a disinformation campaign to dig up dirt on someone, to surveil someone, try to entrap somebody. The person in Hungary um, who had actually been caught in this Black Cube scheme where they went to him and they, they, they got him, and I described this in the book, they, they got him on tape saying that he was lobbying the European Union to be tougher on Orban's government, which of course he was. He's an NGO activist. But this appears in the Jerusalem Post of all places. That's where it's leaked right before the Hungarian election as proof of like a conspiracy by Hungarian NGOs to overthrow Orban, right? So that leads me to my second point, which is, again, like people may add us, but like there's an Israeli nexus to this. And what it's a part of a broader ecosystem that, that is not limited to Israel, but it includes the American right and Trump associates who are tied in with these people. And Remember when we were on that list of like enemies yeah. from the, the, what, around enemies the NSC? Or, or the what, Trump whatever, NSC? Yeah, whatever the fuck is Eric Prince doing in his right. private intel work? And then you've got Viktor Orban, who's clearly in this world. Bibi Netanyahu was clearly in this world. Um, the, the Saudis and the Emiratis clearly in this world. There's this kind of alliance of, of these autocrats um, that are, are, look at journalists and certain former officials like us or look at 
activists and, and we're nowhere near the danger that these other people are. But like it, it, it's totally unsettling. And, and, and there's a part of me that thinks that they don't even mind when these stories come out. Because I think part of it is it's like intimidation. It's like, oh, what are they going to be in my phone? I better not say certain things on my phone, you know, or maybe it's not worth, you know, being a journalist who investigates corruption because I don't want to be targeted by this. Right. So to me, it's part of this kind of really kind of transnational industry of, of and this is where it's different than the U.S. government, you know, conducting basically state espionage. Right. Like this is like a, a transnational network of. Of, of autocrats and oligarchs and service industries um, that is meant to intimidate people. It also makes me wonder, I mean, if you have the Mossad and then this unit 8200 that does the Ziegler's intelligence for Israel, if they can't get government approval to spy on someone or something, maybe you call up your old buddy uh, in, in private industry and sort of outsource it to them. Like yeah. put, put a couple layers between you. I mean, I just, oh, the oh, whole that, thing is disconcerting and ripe be, for abuse. I could not agree with you more. Like clearly what happens is you know, you might not want it to get out that the Israeli government or the Saudi government or the Hungarian government was spying on a journalist or an activist. So you just create this layer where when it comes out, everybody denies that they knew anything about it. If you're telling me for a second that the, the Netanyahu government in Israel had no idea that a bunch of former Mossad agents and former Israeli NSA types were doing all this stuff and I mean, that's insane that they like, of course, they yeah. somebody knew in the Israeli government. Like this is a pretty small community of people. They work on this stuff. And, and so, look, it's another thing of where we have to ask these hard questions. And and again, something else we took a lot of shit for. But like one of the darker underbellies of the Abraham Accords. Right. And, and is it good that, that, that the Emiratis and, and, and other governments have recognized Israel? Yes. But part of what has undergirded this relationship is. The collaboration in space like this, um, yeah. which is not great. Yeah, you know? yeah. We just we just don't want to see like a, a private spyware industry crop up in every country, and all of a sudden, all, all, everyone's selling this stuff to the highest bidder. Yeah. And God help us all. Speaking of hacks, um, on Monday <laughs> in the U.S., good transition. The, the European Union, NATO, a bunch of other close allies of the U.S. Uh, accused the Chinese government of being behind a series of recent cyber attacks, including this March 2021 hack into Microsoft's email servers. I think we talked about it at yeah. the time. Uh, DOJ also charged four Chinese nationals with trying to steal intellectual property, including Ebola vaccine research and driverless vehicle technology. So we're used to that kind of stuff, like the yeah. Chinese government stealing IP. But apparently the Chinese were working with criminals for hire, and they were also conducting ransomware. And that surprised uh, government officials talking on background and some of the reporting on this. So it was interesting to me to see that there was this big multilateral announcement. It included NATO. I think that might have been new. They yeah. didn't announce any sanctions, but you know it does seem like the goal, according to people in these stories, the goal is to get the Chinese and the Russians to agree to some guardrails for cyber attacks. And maybe these enforcements uh, periodically are, are, are trying to help get us there. I don't know. What'd you make of this? I mean, first of all, it, it does show how far things have moved in a decade, because when there were some of these types of cyber attacks in the Obama years, we were always told like you're not allowed to talk. I think you probably dealt with this, right? Yeah. It, it was treated no like a, a it was treated like a law enforcement activity, right. right? So it was only the FBI or DOJ that was allowed to say someone was responsible for a hack, you know. And it wasn't until that North Korea Sony hack that that began to change. I'm glad that yeah, we're not. Stupid. I thought that was stupid at the time. It's like everybody knows 
you know, why can't we say the Russians are doing this? And they would say, because there's an ongoing law enforcement case and we might bring charges and you don't want to prejudice that. But the reality is this is yeah. a, such a- Sure, those charges are going to land. Yeah, yeah, those, yeah, those four yeah, Chinese yeah. nationals are going to fly over and get yeah, prosecuted yeah, we got, tomorrow. We got them. Right? We got them. You know, like yeah. uh, Preet's going to be ringing them up in front of the <laughs> yeah. SDNY. But like, I think it's good to be racist and just put a pin on it. This is no fault of the Biden people, because I'm actually I give them a huge credit for prioritizing this. We don't quite know what to do about this yet. No. You know, like the, the Russians and Chinese clearly have no respect for any norm or guardrail when it comes to ransomware. This is far beyond espionage, right? Because again, people could rightly say, well, if they're just like hacking into systems, trying to learn stuff about what's happening in America. How is that different than what America does in other places? This is going well beyond that. It's not just theft of intellectual property. It's ransomware. It's criminality. So the, the, I think it's smart to try to multilateralize this, bring a lot of public attention to it, and then try to drive that into some kind of negotiation. Yeah. Give them the Ebola research vaccine. Let yeah, everybody yeah, work on take that. Take that one. You know, <laughs> driverless cars, though, like, I mean, you know, we, oh, I don't know if I want a driverless car. Yeah, I can't tell if they're working or not. Um, let's talk climate change because there's a bunch of news from this last week. So first thing, this is a little dark. A new study found that part of the Amazon rainforest is now emitting more carbon dioxide than it absorbs. Uh, this is very Not bad <laughs> since historically the Amazon has absorbed and captured CO2 and helped take it out of the atmosphere, which slows down climate change. But you know, deforestation, which dramatically increased under President Bolsonaro, and then just general warming of the planet has uh, led to a tipping point where you could see a functional destruction of the Amazon where it turns into grass savanna, basically. So that's real depressing. Two, uh, climate change is seen as a factor that led to extreme rain and flooding in parts of Germany and Belgium that killed hundreds of people, left hundreds more missing, and is, will cost billions to clean up and repair. Uh, it could also create some political fallout in Germany because the conservative candidate who is looking to replace Angela Merkel when she steps down at the end of this year was caught on camera at an event honoring the victims. He was like joking with some colleagues. So there's a question of whether this will help the Green Party uh, three cheers for that if it does. And then finally, Ben, uh, last week, China opened a national carbon emissions market or a cap and trade program. So this would limit the amount of carbon dioxide that companies can release, power companies specifically in China. It's not their entire industry. But it would encourage them to be more energy efficient because if you are a coal-powered plant and you can reduce your carbon output, you can then sell the unused pollution allowances. Companies that go over the limit will have to pay, right? So it creates this market to be uh, a little cleaner. Ben, these three stories together, like the Amazon news is horrible. The floods are awful. Um what do you think about the creation of this long promised uh, emissions market from China? I know this was promised to Obama, I believe, in 2015 yeah, yeah, by Xi yeah, Jinping. Yeah, I, I think it's a positive step. And, and I think you see some, you know, the European Union's pressing for a border adjustment tax, too, which essentially would be a tax on, um, you know, other countries that are not taking sufficient steps on climate on their goods. So you're seeing these new public policy responses on China in particular. They've actually shown increasing and positive ambition in terms of what they're doing at home, and this is the latest step in that regard. The next frontier with China, though, is their Belt Road Initiative, right, where they're building you know trillion dollars worth of infrastructure along mm -hmm. this vast territory. Right, they're not applying the same yeah, standards there. The cement, so they're building things, like yeah. yeah, they're using coal uh, on the Belt Road. So it's good. Next step, though, is like China has to. And the U.S., by the way, in our own um, development efforts around the world, you know, everybody needs to, to the, the, the highest bar that they're meeting domestically needs to be internationalized. Brazil's a, another piece of this picture, which is that, you know, one of the things I was struck by late in the Obama administration getting to Paris, and I mentioned this before, is how climate change enters into a bilateral relationship. Um, it's not just at the multilateral nerdy climate negotiations that you do business. 
the biggest issue in the U.S.-Brazil relationship going forward should be the protection of the Amazon. Yeah. You know, I mean, that bilaterally, when we sit down to talk to Brazil, it shouldn't just be about, you know, uh, you know commerce and hemispheric issues. This is it, right? And it's a good example of how every country has some unique piece of this climate puzzle that we have to solve. And, and this one, clearly, they're moving under Bolsonaro in a hugely wrong direction, literally to the point where, like, the entire planet has a stake in Bolsonaro losing next year. Yeah. Well, you know, last we heard of him, he was at the hospital because he had been hiccuping for days and days and days. Yeah, two weeks of hiccups. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to make fun of him, and then I learned it was uh, related to uh, when he was stabbed in 2018, I believe. So that made it less funny to me. But yeah. I don't know. We need that guy to lose. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's enough other reasons for that guy to lose other than you know, the hiccups. Yeah, I mean, he's wildly corrupt. The latest uh, allegation is that he cut some sweetheart deal to get, I, I believe, the Indian uh, vaccine for COVID that was at some inflated price and he turned down Pfizer or something. Like, he's just the worst leader possible for and that country. Can you imagine having so little regard for your country and its future that – because the Amazon is, is first and foremost a climate resource, but – it's also just like part of Brazil's identity. Mm -hmm. Like you just indigenous people. Yeah, yeah, it's just like oh, that's a bunch of. I got some logger friends, and I want to own the. I want to own the Brazilian libs by cutting down the Amazon. Well, congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than fifty countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, 
It's Fruit Loops, the same way you say Studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Uh, some Haiti updates. So on Monday, Haiti announced a new prime minister who they hope will fill the leadership vacuum left by the assassination of President Jovenel Moise. Uh, just before Moise's assassination, he announced that a man named Ariel Henry will become the next prime minister. But the prime minister at the time, Claude Joseph, decided to hang on to power after the assassination happened. So for a while, we had two people claiming to be the prime minister of Haiti. Not good. Tough gig. Yeah, tough gig. Uh, Joseph announced that he will step down after reportedly lots of pressure from the U.S. and other foreign countries. His consolation prize is becoming foreign minister. So all the the gangs kind of sticking together here. Um, U.S. officials say they're pushing for a unity government followed by elections. So Ben, I have no idea what to make of this. I don't know the players. I'm not in Haiti, obviously. But clearly it was dangerous and untenable to have two people claiming to control the country, right? You don't want it to devolve. But the international community barging in and forcing a solution like this and saying, this guy's in charge now, sounds like exactly the opposite uh, of what Whitlaw Marincourt, who I talked to last week, a Haitian journalist, suggested was needed, right? Which is just listen to the Haitian people, listen to civil society. And it comes not long after both Trump and the Biden White House publicly backed President Moise, who... Uh, was disputing the length of his term, basically. He said he should be able to hang on for one more year because he took power late, long story short. What did you make of this recent news about sort of like U.S.-backed machinations and that broader criticism that the U.S. is once again tolerating authoritarian rulers in hope of creating stability? Yeah, I thought, I mean, the New York Times did a long story on this over the weekend um, about how both Trump and, and Biden had backed Moise despite kind of constant warnings that this guy is autocratic, this guy is undermining the rule of law. And it's a pretty disappointing story. And it, it had this other piece that connects to what we're talking about in terms of listening to Haitians. The kind of reflexive talking point is like, just we'll have an election, you know, like, right. um, and- Punt that, it down the road. That sounds good, yes. right? Like, it sounds great. We'll have an election and that'll sort this out and then there'll be a legitimate government. But the problem is- like when you rush these elections, I mean, the, the, these Haitian elections, they're, they're a mess. Like the, there's constant charges of fraud. There's there's violence in certain areas and intimidation. The elections kind of get rushed and then they're disputed. And, and, and look, obviously you want to get to an election, but like to, to what we're talking about last, uh, we should just keep repeating this. Like, let's listen to the Haitian NGOs and civil society who want democracy in Haiti to work, right? About have, like have since eighteen oh four. Yes, the, you know, like let let's <laughs> yeah. instead of a bunch of foreigners saying, okay, you know, hold an election and then we can all right. say this is taken care of, even though nothing is fixed. Like, like let's listen to these people and develop a process that that is driven by them. That is the roadmap to what the government is and what the election process is and how can we better put up guardrails against you know corrupt results and the rest of it. Uh, I, I just there's this kind of you know cookie cutter approach where you say you know, well, we're back that guy because he happens to be there and then we'll hold the election. And including Haiti, that has not worked. Yeah. I mean, clearly a lot of these leaders have just not served the place well for a while. And I guess they told the president of the Senate who was going to run to stand down. And he was asked why. And he said, because the U.S. diplomats basically called and told me not to. So yeah, yeah, Yeah. we are uh, very much thumbing the scale. Speaking of thumbing the scale, let's go to Cuba because last week we talked about these truly unprecedented uh, anti-government protests. Uh, so a couple updates since then. First, it was interesting that the, the the 
Cuban government made some small concessions to the protesters by announcing that Cubans can temporarily travel abroad and bring back food, medicine, and other essential items without having to pay customs. Did you think that was a significant concession? I did. The other thing that they did, which they almost never do, is they admitted error. You know, they said that they had made some mistakes. Um, It it did, did suggest to me a government that is nervous about what's happening. I, I think it also suggests like Diaz Canal, who's the president now, is not Fidel or Raul Castro. Like he doesn't have the same yeah, that's a common aura, theme. right? You know, and and so he's kind of grasping for ways to let some air out of this balloon. And um, um, so, uh, to me, again, I, broken record here. I, th- I what we should be trying to do is get as much into Cuba as possible in terms of both the humanitarian assistance, but like greater connectivity to the world. Um, I've seen some people, you know, saying we should like put the internet up in the sky or something. We we negotiated internet access, and that was beginning to make headway. Um, you can block the internet. The Cubans have Chinese and Russian friends who can show them how to block the internet. Ultimately, the best and most efficient way to get internet access, which we did and worked, was like just a negotiated process of getting that in there. It feels like their vulnerability. It's funny you could look at that. And most people, I guess, in American politics would look at what the Cubans did in terms of allowing for some people to travel and said, oh, that means we should squeeze them more, you know? Right. I, I'd come to the opposite conclusions. It's, oh, that means that these guys might allow in more um, connectivity to the outside world. That's what we should be trying to do. I'm not optimistic that that's what we'll try to do, given the, the politics of Cuba. But but to me, if, it would be a huge missed opportunity if, if these guys are, are, are somewhat desperate and looking to, to open back up in some ways despite the, the last few years of Trump sanctions, if we just kind of issue our statements from Washington, keep everything in place, it's not going to change down there. It's just going to stay the pressure cooker that it is. Yeah. I mean, speaking of pressure cookers, so I saw that they are, Cubans are dealing with 11% contraction in GDP in 2020, an estimated 500% inflation rate. Uh, the other sort of notable things were the government, I guess, has been organizing counter protests to show yeah bring out everybody in support of the the revolution. And then President Biden ordered the State Department to review U.S. remittance policy and then consider adding staff to the U.S. embassy. So those are some things we talked about Those are good steps. Those are good steps. And and remittances go directly to Cubans, helps them, deepens connections to the United States, diplomats we want there. Because I guess, you know, the way, if it did change, right, like, and this is something people need to, to keep in mind, right? It's you, they wouldn't just stand up and hold multi-party elections and and declare freedom. It would change probably for the worse if the government kind of collapses to some extent, and then there's like desperation and the rest of it. Um, you know that's why you want a diplomatic presence. That's why you, you want to be there. You want to you want to be engaged to to try to understand what's happening and see what we can do to 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 nudge things in a better direction. One um, sort of Cuba adjacent story. So uh, you know the Trump administration emptied out the embassy because of this mysterious illness or reports of a mysterious illness that was afflicting staff there. It was called the Havana syndrome for short. Um, symptoms include debilitating headaches, nausea, vertigo, vision problems, and in some cases, brain damage that resembles a concussion. We've talked about this a bunch. Uh, this week, uh, the New Yorker, a guy named Adam Entis, reported that since Biden took office, about two dozen U.S. government officials serving in Vienna, Austria, have reported symptoms similar to the Havana syndrome. So the working hypothesis still seems to be that Russian intelligence goons are aiming microwave radiation devices at these victims, probably trying to steal their data. Although that doesn't totally make sense to me. If you're like 
some Intel guy with your iPhone, like what's the value of that data? It's not yeah. classified. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then it's hurting people inadvertently. That's one of the theories. We don't know for sure. It does seem clear, Ben, that like this wasn't some Cuban-led op since like I don't think they're running big teams no. in yeah. Vienna or You could or be 100% DC. sure that the Cubans were not attacking U.S. diplomats in Vienna, which, which again, just like the, the theory from the beginning that, that I had, that a lot of people had, is that the Russians are behind this. They're the only ones who are that aggressive. And that, that maybe in a place like Cuba, they had some help from some some Cubans uh, on the inside. Who knows who they run? You know, they, they're, they're pretty deep in places like Vienna too. But like, this is a problem of yeah. enormous scale because this is happening around the world. Any U.S. diplomat is probably feeling a little unsafe right now. And again, this is not a criticism because the Biden people just, you know, have only been there for a few months, um, probably trying to get their arms around this. But this is another one where they they need to kind of explain what's happened, I think. I think some greater transparency is needed on this because this is that big of an issue. And then they need to figure out how to, to communicate that they can they can deal with this, right? And, yeah. and and again, I say that with a lot of you know, that that's not easy but no. but this this keeps popping up and um I'm glad that Adamentus and um you know, is still on this cuz like a lot of people kind of moved on from the story but like it just keeps getting worse yeah i mean the the good thing is you know according to this report you know bill burns the new cia director is like seized with the problem he's really you know talking to victims paying close personal attention and parker is a diplomat right so he yeah. he knows he's a cia director who was a lifelong diplomat so he knows what it must feel like to be in a, you know, posted at some embassy and not know whether your headache is because you got hit with a, you know, weapon or whether you just have a headache. Yeah, you're just hung over. Yeah. Well, that, you know. Just, you know, look, both could be true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's real. It's a real thing. Well, it's actually, really I, scary. I tell you, I tell this again, the story at the beginning after the fall, which I, I'm not not going out of my way to plug. It's like weirdly the news keeps intersecting with it. But I was in Havana and... In 2017, and I learned about these attacks from a friend who worked at the embassy. Oh, really? Um, yeah, we had like a drink, and he kind of quietly told me about this. And I was like, what do you, what? And a couple days later, I got incredibly sick. Oh, no. Um, I had like a massive headache, and I was, let's just say I was, well, I was uh-huh. up, you know, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, all that. Sure. And, and, and it was like, I was like, oh, I have food poisoning, you know, like that, which happens in Cuba, right? Like, you know, you're eating a bunch of different stuff. And I was just incredibly sick for like, longer than you normally would be, you know, two days instead of one, basically. And then I was fine. And I probably, you know, 95%, you know, I ate something bad or, you know, the the Havana Club rum did something Mm -hmm. weird in my system or whatever. But like, it's in your head. Yeah, that anxiety ain't going anywhere. It's this anxiety in my head of like, did I get, did somebody hit me here? Like, what's going on here? Um, That anxiety is your friend. I guarantee you that that's in in the heads of a lot of people serving overseas. Totally. Or people thinking about serving overseas. Yeah. It's terrible. Uh, Let's do a little space news. This morning, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin rocket company successfully launched the richest man in the world and three other people 65 miles above the Earth and briefly into space. Uh, on a previous pod, we talked about how this was a, a, a space race between Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson. It's an intergalactic dick measuring contest. And so I would be we remiss- We were ahead of the curve. We were way ahead of the curve. Speaking of the curve, Ben, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that <laughs> Bezos's rocket was by far the most phallic looking yeah. of the three. I mean- I, 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 I have to say, I opened up Twitter The jokes morning, were flying. And I was like, we were about two weeks ahead of the zeitgeist on this one. Because um, wow, now I, that thing. I, so I was thinking of like what is the uh, additional angle because we the, the phallus uh, we've we've referenced uh, and and people should should make fun of that because it does say something. Um, but um, 
the picture, right? So like when I was a kid and I grew up, there were always those iconic pictures of like the flight crews, like before they went up in a yeah, space yeah, mission. Yeah, looking so, badass, like, walking slowly. Yeah, the, old, the old cool ones were like the Apollo missions, but even like the space shuttle, they'd always take that picture of the astronauts and with their ben helmets, Affleck. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like <laughs> Affleck, right? Now Bezos put out this picture. Did you see this of the four of them? In the blue suits. And with the hat. Yeah, and they're all holding the helmets, and there's randomly, like, it's him and his brother, and there's, like, an old woman uh, who I don't even know who she is. She, um, this, she's an interesting story. She qualified to be an astronaut and was not allowed because of sexism great. and gender so rules. So like, she went to She's, space. like, 80 years old, so that's, like, a cool story. Okay. And then there's some young kid who's, I, I think, maybe won it in the auction. He's some Dutch kid. Okay, so here's the thing. Like, we'll put aside this woman who I'm glad she went to space. But, like... Those people that used to be in those pictures, like, had earned it. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, like they trained to be astronauts for, like, decades, you know, like, their whole lives. Or they were, like, fighter pilots in the Navy or something. Yeah. You know, like, these guys just, like, want the thrill ride. It's like that picture that maybe they had the poster on the wall when they were a kid of, like, the people going up in the shuttle or something. I was like, come on, man. Like, yeah, it's like Jared buying his way into Harvard. Yeah, the, exactly. Like... That's what I'm saying. Like, you didn't earn this trip to space like a, like all these astronauts yeah. that you're posing on. Say what you want about Elon Musk, but he's, like, his primary job is engineering. He's designing yeah. things. Like, yeah. that's what he does all day. He's not just financing it by selling some shares of Amazon. Like, yeah. I, whatever. I think it's kind of cool. Here, here's a quote from Mr. Bezos, Ben. The solar system can easily support a trillion humans, Bezos said. If we had a trillion humans, we could have a thousand Einsteins and a thousand Mozarts and unlimited, for all practical purposes, resources and solar power. To which I say, Jeff, the edibles have gotten a lot stronger. Well, and if you have a trillion humans... How many prime customers is that? <laughs> so, you know, like that's what, you know the, like when he takes the edible and he thinks about the trillion humans and the colonies on Mars and stuff, he's thinking about Amazon Prime, like so that's a hundred million know, Kindles, hoverboards and and stuff coming down, like yeah, like dropping off like your paper towels at the at the fucking colony, you know? intergalactic drones, yeah, just yeah. flipping you some TP. <laughs> yeah. Again, space exploration is cool. I guess I'm happy about this. I'd love to see these billionaires. Uh, think about spending money on climate change so that we could hang on to this planet for a while because these these rockets are just like belching out like 60 airplanes worth of CO2 every time they launch. So if this becomes like a, a tourism thing, it's going to be a problem. Well, this is the other question I, I generally, because like you're right, Elon Musk, who we can find a lot to criticize him for, but like he's- Mostly his tweets. He's been, Yeah, mostly his tweets. He's been consistent and diligent in like building something that's mm-hmm. like a kind of model, a business, public-private partnership, whatever. But like, on these flights, like what, what clearance do you have to get? Like if, if Jeff Bezos mm. wants to go to space, like d- is that just like another air traffic control thing? Like huh. I mean, how do you do that? Like who do you call? Do you call? Do you have to call NASA and be like, hey, can I get? Do you need a permit to go to space? Like I bet you do. Yeah, I mean, interesting. I, 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 like this, I, I'd, I'd like to see. I, you know, if you're Jeff Bezos, I guess you just do what you want. But. I'm gonna take an edible and Google that for an <laughs> hour tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Ben. So everybody loves. A I good... still think people should have. Like the army on mass should have taken the edibles and marched in Area 51. Yeah, that and was a miss. Once again, we were ahead of the curve. Will not because it was like it. it was like a year ahead of the alien report, two years, and we were calling for this to happen pre-COVID. And then they canceled the march. Remember, and it was yeah. like, well, I think they were they're all going to die in <laughs> Death Valley. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's fair because I was going to root it on from here. I wasn't actually going to go. So Area 51, great mystery. Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Knives Out, Get Out, Memento Scream, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Here's a new entry from our friends in Australia. 
did Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison shit himself in, <laughs> in McDonald's in 1997? <laughs> Apparently, everyone in Australia wants to know. So, Ben, the weirdest part of this story, people are wondering, what is Tommy talking about? I guess no, Mor- this is like a huge deal. Morrison brought deal. this up in a radio interview. So, I guess the, the rumor went viral in 2019. He could have done this on, on Pod Save the World. Any other time. He could have done this anytime. So, I guess in 2019, this went so viral that a street artist put up a commemorative plaque at the <laughs> McDonald's in question. And you can find like, Kennedy assassination, Zapruder film, like <laughs> breakdowns of what his exit would be going from like the rugby match to home. So it's absolutely hilarious. Some, the most, you know, advanced uh, conspiracy theorists wonder if he brought this up in the interview to distract from their terrible record on COVID. Mm. I, I don't know. Like, what do we make of this? Could be, couldn't bad McDonald's be why those guys uh, got lost naked in the woods a few weeks ago? So I have a couple thoughts on this and, and I was going to start with the naked people in the woods. Um, and just allude to the fact that, like, we keep coming back to Australia through these pretty interesting angles. Uh-huh. But I have to say, this is kind of what I love about Australians, is that, like, the how big this, when I started reading about this, like, how big this thing was. Huge. Like, like, it's set, like, if you know Australians and, like, their sense of humor, like, the endless jokes that there must be about this episode is, is just kind of awesome, right? Yeah. Like, yes. in the same way that there was something weirdly awesome about like the naked dudes who were probably so high that they ran into the woods. By the way, though, a a lot of listeners were talking shit to us, being very credulous that we thought that these guys were really scared by a deer. Neither of us ruled out (laughs) that they were engaging in maybe other activities, like mushrooms, perhaps other. I just didn't understand how you could run so far into the woods that you got lost or the deer component. The deer component. It's a bad lie. That's a bad cover story if it's cover story. Mm. Um, So kudos to the Australian people for keeping this conspiracy theory or or thing alive about Scott Morrison, who's kind of a pretty creepy guy anyway. But then the other thing is clearly, and I'm going to go kind of on the record here, Mm. he clearly shit himself. I mean, you protest too much. Like he kept, I saw the, you know, oh, everybody says this and and I see why people think it's a good yarn, but it's wrong. And like, like it, sell, there, it felt like a defensiveness. Like if you had been accused of shitting yourself in a McDonald's like 15 years or 20 years ago, whatever, I, I, you'd probably be like, oh, come, come on, that's crazy. I'm sick of hearing that. He seemed to like really engage, you know? Yeah, you know, it it reminds me of a, a a very famous viral tweet that I think said something like, um, "My not engaging in human trafficking T-shirt is raising more questions than it answered." Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Br- bringing up the story of you maybe sharding in a McDonald's <laughs> yeah, in, in yeah. 1997. And look, man, I mean, I haven't done that, but like. It, you know, who it knows happens. what was going on in 97? It happens. Famously, shit happened. I mean, McDonald's bathroom is usually not the nicest place. Like, it, it's, Yeah, he was probably slamming some pints at the rugby match. Yeah, you just get in like a couple of Big Macs after having a little too much to drink. Like, it's all right, man. I love Australia. I want to go back. I love Australia. I want to go to Sydney. Remember, we went to Australia, we went to Canberra and Darwin, and those were not where you go as a tourist. Uh, we went to Canberra and Darwin, and then I went back to Brisbane. Uh, but then I got to go to Sydney um, after government, and it's it's everything that people tell you it is. It's God just damn it. awesome. It's just cool. it, it, it's like can't go right now. I don't yeah. think. No, they're not really vaccinated over there. Yeah, well, that's why Scott Morrison. I mean, they've had low sucks. cases because they did effective lockdowns and yep, stuff. And yep. Pretty cut off, but like their vaccine rates are like really, really low. Yeah, not good. Yeah. I don't think they prioritized it. A little Olympic update. So the games start very soon. 
Unfortunately, the big news so far is a lot of positive COVID test results yeah, that might yeah, prevent athletes from competing. So American tennis star Coco, Coco Goff, Goff. Yeah. tested positive. She's so good. I love her. I love She's her. really cool. I, I guess a, a, a young woman, minor, uh, an alternate on the gymnastics team tested positive. Several South African soccer players tested positive. Then you have all these athletes flying on commercial flights, and a bunch of them have been on planes where they found out someone on their flight had COVID. So now they're stuck in like maybe quarantine limbo. And if they have to fully quarantine, they can't compete. So these poor people are just screwed. It's like, you I don't know that you could do a better job designing an international super spreader event than yeah. like slap a bunch of athletes from hundreds of countries on a plane to one place commercially. Yeah, this doesn't feel like it's going well. No. Um, and and this question of whether people who've been exposed after quarantine, I don't know if like Jason Concepcion can help us. I, I, does anybody know whether Chris Paul had COVID? Um, Good question. Because he didn't, it wasn't 14 days and then he nope. was playing and I'm glad he was playing. It's great to watch Chris yeah. Paul. But like, I only raise that because it feels like people are kind of making ad hoc calls here. You know what I mean? Like, and maybe they aren't. I mean, um, and I'm not even talking about the NBA, I'm talking about the Olympics. Like, they haven't been clear about like what are, because the NBA at least has these COVID protocols that they're, um, now the Olympics has something like that, but I I feel like we're going to face a lot of pressure where the number of athletes exposed is going to kind of complicate the integrity of the competition, or there are going to be people who flew all the way there who might not be able to compete, or like the richer countries whose athletes don't have to like change planes 900 times. Right. Or were vaccinated earlier. Or vaccinated yeah. earlier, had this kind of weird advantage. There's just going to be a lot of um, tough calls here. And and thus far, it feels like it's not great. Yeah, it's not not great. It's, it's uh, dampening my enthusiasm a little bit. I mean, I'm still enthusiastic. I'm still like I'm 100% watch. behind our I'm athletes. And, and, and that no way diminishes their accomplishment. No. Let's be very clear. Just, I want to see Simone Biles crush it and all yep. the rest of it. I'm going to watch the wheelchair rugby because now you and I are like We're all in. totally standing U.S. wheelchair rugby. But like I, 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 I just... Yeah, the, there's. This is a tough one. You know? Yeah, I think it's a question of whether some of these breakthrough infections, like you're infected but you're not sick at all, and that yeah. might be what Chris Paul had. Mostly, I just feel for the Japanese people who are like, we didn't want this. We're in lockdown. Yeah. We're not making any money on we this. Can't we can't go to the go. games. I feel so bad for the Japanese. We can't hang out. We can't do anything. Japanese world is out there. Like we have like total solidarity. Total and how much it must suck to like spend billions of dollars to host these games, and you can't go. And it and it makes it feel like COVID's kind of coming around. It's just not. And there's all these weird controversies, like some the like South Korean uh, president's not going because there's always a Japan South Korea thing. Yeah, he said something. I don't. You know what? Yeah, I don't have the exact wording, but so it was don't, something. Don't wait uh, into it. Don't wait into it. Yeah, you're gonna piss off one side of that. Yeah, uh, and it's not gonna be good. Google what a, a yeah, Japanese yeah, yeah, embassy yeah. official yeah. said about yeah. the South Korean uh, leadership, and then yeah. you'll know why. I, 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 I'll Google it myself. Yeah, I, I wasn't tracking. It's kind of funny. Okay, so three athletes for you, Ben. So uh, Brianna Clark. Brianna is a Paralympian competing in track and field. She's from LA, so you got to shout oh, out the yeah, hometown yeah, girl. Total, totally got her back. Won a gold medal in 2016 in the 400 meters. Uh, she has autism developed when she was four, uh, but she's an incredible pedigree of athletes uh, that you know make her just a likely winner this year because her mom, Rosalind, won a silver medal in the 1976 Olympic Games. So when she won her Olympic medal, is like 40 years later. It's a really awesome story. I mean, because the thing about the Olympics generally is that like you end up crying, right? Because like you see the story, the, the yeah. kind of brief package that NBC does about the 
all the things that some athlete had to overcome. They are astonishing human beings. Ryan Krauser. Ryan is competing in the shot put. This oh, guy, yeah. this Haas is six seven. Badass, badass event. Six seven two seventy five. Lives in Oregon. One gold in Rio in 2016. Okay, listen to this. His cousin qualified for the 2016 games. His dad was an alternate on the 1984 Olympic team. His uncle is also a two time Olympian. So again, were they some all serious genes? Can you imagine like the family reunion when you're just a bunch of shot putters? Do you think they just like rip a bunch of beers and then go out to the backyard and see you can like toss a shot? Throw putter? nieces yeah. and nephews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> imagine that dad yeah, yeah, yeah. tossing you in the pool. The, da- the dad tosses in the pool. Yeah, they're, they're better t- than mine. You know? Dad, we're reaching the shallow end here. Uh, last one I got. Uh, Angelica Delgado. So Angelica is competing in judo. She's from Miami, Florida. Competed the 2016 games in his Team USA as top-ranked hopeful for this year's games. Angelica's dad was on the Cuban national judo team, and he started training her at nine years old. So that's a tough nine-year-old kid who's like, yeah, let's fight every day in yeah, the backyard. Like, dad. Hey, my dad, my judo dad's going to take me out. And, you know, that, 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 I mean, and there's this, there's this pretty, you know, like um, amazing, you know, interconnection between Cuban athletes and, and American athletes, people who, you know, came here from Cuba. Um, the, the scale of athletic, you know, capability from Cubans and Cuban Americans, like if, you know, is, 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 I mean, baseball, like, cause I love baseball. Like if you, if you, if you added that up, like, the, like if you had an all Cuban team uh, that included Cuban Americans and Cuban players, like they just, they just crushed the baseball, for instance. Yeah, that's true. Judo, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about, but uh, she's clearly going to crush. Okay, so that is all our Olympic news for today. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Mohammed Sultan. Stick around for that. It's a really important story. It dovetails with a lot of what we talked about today. So stick around. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Mohammed Sultan, uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, Mohammed is a human rights activist and the founder of the Freedom Initiative, a human rights organization advocating for release of wrongfully detained prisoners across the Middle East and North Africa. Mohammed, uh, thanks so much for, for being with us here. Thank you so much, Ben, for having me. I really appreciate you. So I, I, I will have given a little bit of uh, background on your story um, in, the, in the setup for this interview. Um, so I want to pick it up where we unfortunately found it earlier this month, um, when the head of Egyptian intelligence came to the United States, uh, was in Washington, and kind of put forward this idea that the U.S. government, uh, as part of its effort to free you from an Egyptian prison, had promised the Egyptian government that you would then be incarcerated in the United States. Um, I know that to not be true. I can talk about that uh, if you'd like, but I want to start by just you know, what was your reaction? How did you learn this news? What did you think when you saw it? Okay, so I definitely want to hear your thoughts on that because you have a different perspective than I did. Uh, so this is this is nothing new. I, I when I first heard it, I thought it was a joke, um, and then when it sank in a little bit, um, I I kind of had a sense this is the top most senior official of the Egyptian government, probably the senior most person that's going to visit the United States since. You know, it's not looking likely that Biden, at least for optics reasons, is going to roll out the red carpet for a state visit for Sisi um, or Trump's favorite dictator, as, as the, the president uh, named him in his uh, July 2023. Um, and so this guy is not just the, the top intelligence chief. This, this Abbas Kamel is Sisi's right hand man. He was his chief of staff. Um, when he was the head of the military intelligence, he was his chief of staff when he was a defense minister. And after the coup, he was the person that got everything done for him. He was the interlocutor between the Gulf states that um, literally funded uh, the coup and thereafter. And so yeah. there, there is uh, this the significance of this man coming to the United States on the first visit, trying to do a victory lap. At the same time, there's an Israeli delegation here in the United States sort of showing off what they were able to do in the Gaza-Israeli ceasefire, trying to capitalize on it. And one of the top four dossiers that he makes an intentional effort to print out and bring to him to when meeting senior officials with Libya, Gaza, and the Ethiopia Dam, um, uh, he, he brings up why isn't Mohammed Sultan in prison? And it was sort of mind-blowing. Like, why do they see my human rights advocacy in Washington as a national security threat almost equivalent to the uh, Ethiopia Dam that endangers, according to them, 105 million Egyptians. Why am I that big of a threat to them? And then it started sinking in and it was really, really scary. Um, it, it was scary on, on, on a lot of levels that I'm a, a, a target of a ruthless regime like that, but also that they see me as that uh, as a top national security threat. And so it's scary to say the least, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I, all I was going to refer to, Mohammed, is that I mean, as you know, I was in the room when President Obama himself um, 
appealed to Sisi to release you um, at a meeting on the margins of the UN General Assembly. Uh, there was no word about detaining you or anything. It was just like, well, <laughs> this guy should be released. He's an American, you know? So I, I uh, but I, I, what, what um, I mean, clearly the Egyptian government knows that the, the U.S. government's not going to arrest you and put you in prison, right? Um, of so I want to come back to the the impunity that they feel to, to even be saying something like that. But But given that he was saying this, you know, on the Hill meetings in Washington, what is the response you would like to see from the U.S. government and from members of Congress to this this kind of really brazen statement? Um, and, and, and how have they responded to date? So from everything that we're hearing from uh, folks on the Hill and, and from the administration is that they sort of dismissed this, um, you know, that I did not commit a crime uh, that the you know, punishable in U.S. Uh, by U.S. law. Uh, I was tweeting for God's sakes. I got a life sentence for literally tweeting. My charge for life sentence in a terrorism court in Egypt was spreading false information to shake the grandeur of the state. And so the response, I, uh, at least the private response to the Egyptians that um, has sort of been uh, dismissive uh, as it should and trying not to make a big deal about this because it's not, it's the, the paper itself is not, I'm not going to prison. Um, uh, and, and just on that, before I, I answer what I'd like to see, um, Senator McCain, God rest so foresaw that the Egyptians would try to do this in 2016. And he wrote a letter when Trump got elected um, in 2016, at the end of 2016, to uh, the, the uh, Obama administration and to the State Department. Um, clearly saying the Egyptians have in the past claimed that Muhammad is uh, deported to go spend out the rest of the sentence in the United States and asking the U.S. State Department to clearly spell out in a fact sheet, sort of in a legal fact sheet, that my case is closed. And we have that letter. It's a private letter. So I've had that in my back pocket in anticipation that this would happen under the Trump administration, given how close Sisi and him was, given that he was the first, you know, to call Trump. But surprisingly, this happens under the Biden administration. And so the sort of emboldenment that you're talking about and the impunity that they enjoy, the how brazen it is for them on their first visit to come and ask for an American human rights advocate to be in prison, knowing full well that that's not gonna be the case, knowing full well that this paper literally is meaningless. Um, It's it's about uh, setting the precedent. It's about telling the US administration, hey, um, you cannot renege on your promises. And so if we release people and we make a deal or whatever deal that they perceive that they made, uh, we're gonna hold you up to it otherwise we can't have a trusting relationship and it's gaslighting. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's this bully diplomacy that the, that these ruthless regimes, um, you know, practice on us diplomats and they play on the short-term memory of, uh, the institutions. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I, I think it's this form picking this, everything that they're trying to do. And so what I would like to see in response to that is, uh, an un sort of uh, unequivocal sort of uh, um, uh, statement from the uh, whether in words or in um, some sort of optics. I mean, <laughs> the the Obama administration did this really well. So um, I met Secretary Kerry uh, before he went to the strategic talks in, in, in Egypt for forty five minutes and you know photo ops, weed out the whole deal, and sort of sending a very strong message. 
maybe not a, a very like a statement, but that not just am I not going anywhere, but that the U.S. government is hosting me in this sort of um, you know in these forms in these rooms. Uh, thankfully, you know, you you uh, you brought me up to the Oval Office to meet uh, yeah. President Obama, which was one of the best days of my life, and taking a picture with him and having that. I mean, this is like these sort of messaging and communicating to the Egyptians that they cannot do this is, 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 uh, I, the Biden administration has yet to do that. Um, the statement that came out from the, uh, from the state department last week was weak at best, uh, to be honest, uh, to sort of reiterate what was said in 2015, but to say that they can't comment on the legal authority of this paper is, is, you know, so as to not open up the can of worms and comment on Egypt's independent judiciary, you know, and it's like, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but you can say Mohammed's case is closed. And, uh, you know, Mohammed is an American citizen that we'll continue to protect him and his rights. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I would like to see from some sort of gesture, some sort of uh, something to communicate to the Egyptians to back the hell off. Uh, and to stop this uh, campaign of intimidation and harassment against me, my family, against other American citizens on U.S. soil, and to just send a very strong message that you can't, you can't just come to the United States, you know, waltzing in the, the, these uh, congressional rooms uh, in the White House and State Department and ask for an American to be imprisoned. Like the U.S. government is not going to do the job, the, the repressive job of, of an autocratic regime. Like that's just not going to happen. Why do you think there's been like a reticence to be more forward leaning and in, in that messaging and in that engagement with you? I mean, I, I know it's an unknowable question, but do you have a sense of why? I think I think there's a sense of let's try to have a dialogue with the Egyptians. Yeah, let's try to convince them that they need to do the right thing. Which the, the regime. I mean, again, why this document, why this news breaking with Politico is so important, not because the paper has no significance, Ben, it's that the regime is sending a message that's not very understood by the U.S. government, unfortunately, and by this administration, that it sees human rights advocacy as big of a threat as water scarcity and food poverty for the literally 105 million Egyptians. They see it at the same weight because it, they see it as an existential threat. CCC's any sort of breathing room, any sort of releases, any sort of just tight, like just loosening up the, the security grip is an existential threat on him personally and his reign. And so that message is sent loud and clear, but then there are those in the administration that still feel like we cannot center human rights in our foreign policy, that this is a longstanding legacy of relationship that needs to be maintained, that we need them for counterterrorism operations, we need them for this. But what happens when then a regime like this extends its hands beyond its own borders, but also within US borders that violates section six of the Arms Export Control Act, which prohibits the arms sale of, of, of arms to countries where there's a pattern of intimidation and harassment. And at the Freedom Initiative, we just released a report that Secretary Blinken acknowledged hours within its release. If this is not happening to me, there's at least two dozen cases that this is more than two dozen cases in the United States where there is a pattern of intimidation and harassment by the Egyptian regime of American citizens. And the, the direct result of that is self-censorship of the diaspora being so scared that the arm, the, the hands of 
the regime will, will reach them in the United States. But even if they can't, they're going to take their family hostage. They took my family hostage. Ben, my dad is still disappeared since June 2020 because I filed a Torture and Victim Protection Act lawsuit in U.S. federal court. I don't know if my dad's dead or alive right now. My family still lives in fear. I stopped communicating with them out of fear that they're going to face repercussions because of my advocacy. And so it, what all of this, and, and all of this now also what this paper represents is that this targeting and harassment of me, my family, and all of the other Americans, um, it, it comes from the top of the pyramid. Uh, yeah. And speaking with former officials, they're saying Abbas Kamel would not have ever done this without CC's orders and directive to mention this as one of the top four national security threats. And so what the U.S. admin has to do in response is yet to be, I mean, the fact that they're still considering the $300 million security waiver that they have to make a decision on, um, the fact that they're still sort of you know, uh, uh, banking on some dialogue that's going to work when there's a fundamental disagreement in, um, in, in, in the way that they see governance. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know that they're going to get to a place where they're going to change. Um, but this dialogue period, I don't know how long the admin is banking on it. Um, but it's, these authoritarians are buying time and they feel emboldened and you know, Egypt gets away with so much, Ben. Um, yeah. It gets away with so much. People don't care about it. People don't talk about it. It's not Saudi, but it's not going to be Saudi, just like Saudi wasn't what it is now yeah. until Akhashoqji happens. And then it's like, oh my God, how did this happen? And it's like, well, no shit, activists have been saying this yeah. for yeah. a very yeah. long time. Yeah. I tell this story in my book and to some extent on, on Missing America, another podcast I talked to you for, but not everybody will have heard it. Um, and, and I don't mean to take you back. I, the, what I wanted to, to draw out for people, though, is that some people listening might think, well, these guys are, are maybe they're bad guys, but we need their help on things like counterterrorism. Um, and I, th I think that the episode in your awful odyssey through the Egyptian prison torture justice system, that, that really puts the lie to that is when they literally put an ISIS recruiter, you know, allowed an ISIS recruiter roaming the prisons to come into your cell and you're on a nonviolent hunger strike. You know, w what was that experience like of recognizing that a government that receives billions of dollars in American assistance is allowing, is not only detaining you, but is also kind of trying to radicalize you, allowing ISIS recruiters in your cell and, and how, connect that to for people to why we shouldn't necessarily be moving forward with things like the next $300 million in assistance to the Egyptian government. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very, so you, you, you told the story. I mean, I, I was on a hunger strike. I was one of the, uh, you know, one of the longest hunger strikes in Egyptian prisons. I almost died over a dozen times uh, going into hypoglycemic comas and low blood pressure, all of that. I, I'm very thankful and fortunate and grateful uh, to you, President Obama, and the, the, the thousands of people that advocated for me to be here today to be able to tell the story. But throughout it, um, when I, in the last six months, I was in utter isolation where the regime literally pulled every trick in the book um, and, 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 and tried to torture me physically, uh, um, psychologically. Um, and from time to time, they would allow ISIS members. And so they would torture the hell out of me so I can break my hunger strike. They 
light control, temperature control. They would throw people and let them die in my cell and, and leave their corpse in the room for, they would torture my dad in the next cell and just, you know, ask me to break my hunger strike. And then they would do all of that and sort of trying to rile me up. And then they would allow an ISIS member to come in my, in my cell when I was not allowed to see a single soul. It was even worse than solitary confinement. Um, and they would uh, try to talk me out of um, uh, try to talk me out of, out, out of my hunger strike and say, hey, this nonviolent stuff doesn't work. It might make right. The world only understands the language of violence. And, uh, you know, for me, it was uh, seeing this, I didn't, I couldn't understand it. And then there was another point where it, on, on March 16, 2015, my dad was sentenced to, to uh, death, literally for politicized uh, 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 charges. And on the same day, there was an ISIS member in front of the same judge that literally got released on bail. Literally, we were on the same transport car back and it made no sense until after I was released, it made all the sense in the world. We yeah. give our entire relationship is based off of this military security assistance that we've been giving them for decades. And they need the extremists and the extremists need them yeah. to survive. And they both, their common enemy is anyone who's a moderate, anyone, any sort of moderate opposition that has his voice. They both need each other. And so you put these people, disenfranchised youth of the Arab Spring, who had hopes and aspirations to be partake in their future and all of that. And you torture the shit out of them and torture that literally is unimaginable. You put them in these horrendous underground dungeons for years, going through a system of injustice, going through no due process, nothing. And you have these recruiters in there. You want to radicalize these people. These are the same prisons, Ben, that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s produced Islamic Jihad movement that gave birth to Al-Qaeda, that, that grandfathered ISIS. Yeah. And right now, as we speak, these prisons are fertile ground for radicalization. And I can't imagine what it will produce because there is a higher concentration of people in those prisons in much worse conditions than they were in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it makes me so frustrated that people don't see that that we are subsidizing this with our tax dollars yeah they need our tax dollars to continue this and and it's so frustrating yeah um i mean i i just i think that it's long past time to to uh, to to not be providing assistance for for that kind of human rights abuse and even in our own interest for that kind of radicalization i i one last question i want to ask you you know i mean one of the things that's inspiring about your story is that you know, you, you could have just kind of come back to the United States, you know, disappeared into the economy, gotten a job like you decided to become a human rights activist, despite this intimidation and probably the intimidation is worse because you decided to become a human rights activist. You know, you're friends with someone like Jamal Khashoggi who paid the, the ultimate price. But but what keeps you going? Like what uh, I asked this question to Rana Yub, who is facing kind of harassment and charges in India for her journalism, but for the people out there, like what keeps you going and how can people help? What would you ask of people listening? So uh, what keeps me going is um, not having a choice. There's so many people that depend. This is much bigger than just me. Uh, and this is, um, this is about 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt and tens of thousands of, um, of, of uh, Saudi uh, political prisoners. This is about this regime literally going with 
all its might against individuals and people. And we don't have a choice but to sort of push back and in the best way that we can. Um, what keeps me going is uh, my dad in prison, uh, my friends, uh, activists who are literally in prison over tweets or, or posts. Um, what keeps me going is seeing people get released uh, and 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 going back and resuming their life and uh, their emotional career, uh, their 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 you know financial life, their family life. That keeps me going every single day, and uh, it's far in between that we see these successes. But when they happen, they're so fulfilling on every way. And lastly, what keeps me going is people like Mustafa Qasim, who was an American citizen that died last year in prison because Trump um, didn't advocate hard enough for him with CC to, to, to get released. And he was the first case that we ever worked on. And him dying in prison after having gone on a hunger strike um, it made me sort of very, even more committed to say, honestly, never again, never again that we're going to allow um, you know, people to die in these prisons without giving them a voice, without you know, putting, putting their stories out there. Um, and what can people do? I mean, uh, go to the Freedom Initiative, thefreedomi.org, and uh, get involved. Uh, call your congressmen and senators. Tell them you don't want your tax dollars to go to uh, an autocracy and, and, and an autocratic regime that is both repressing its own people, using the weapons that we send them against their own people, and repressing even American citizens and, and, and what's it called? Get, uh, get active, post, share. Um, it, honestly, <laughs> the smallest things uh, can make the biggest yeah. difference. You don't know if you can retweet something and and the right person can see it and and be you know uh, uh, move to change something. So um, that's that's uh, that's it. Well, look, that's a great message to leave us with. Um, really appreciate you joining us. I'm sorry you're once again going through this, but I know you're one of the most resilient people I've, I've met. So um, thanks for joining us, Eid, Eid Mubarak, and hope uh, hope you have. Uh, I ho hope that things move in the right direction here on some of these issues. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you to Mohammed Sultan for joining the show. Uh, ben, one story I didn't bring up to you because it was fake news. Did you see the viral New York Post link about the anti-sex beds at the Olympic Village? No, I I tend to not go to the New York Post so much. So uh, good practice, good, <laughs> yeah. good hygiene. Usually they're attacking me. They usually that's the only time I see it is when. Yeah, they're, they're really mean yeah. to us. Uh, so the uh, the organizers are making a lot of the beds for athletes out of cardboard, I guess to save space, to recycle them, whatever. The New York Post decided they were anti-sex beds because. Uh, I guess in their minds, you couldn't have sex on them because they might what, collapse or something. What is in your post? What are they into over there? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, yeah. yeah, they're also like, making... <laughs> they're really, I think, um, <laughs> showing a, a lack of imagination for some of the most yeah. athletic people on the planet. Yeah, they could figure it out. They could figure, <laughs> it out. They can figure this yeah. one out. But yeah, so that was fake news. That, but we're that repeating it That feels like here. fake news to me. And like going too far out of your way to generate an Olympic story, which, which I support to some extent, but come on. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you just forget it's like it's like the Murdoch paper. Like everybody I mean, like yes, it's like a tabloid so sometimes there's like a funny story, but like it's also like, you know, it's like the family paper. Well, and the thing that sucks about it is um 
people were like, oh, who reads that rag? You know who reads that rag? Every like, morning TV producer who lives in New York who yeah, gets yeah. into some car that's paid for by their network in the morning and yeah. has like that paper there in the New York Times and the Journal. I used to be a Daily News guy growing up. Really? But it kind of, it just, it used to be awesome. It used yeah. to be like, there used to be these legends. I don't know if you've heard of like Pete Hamill and all these like mm-hmm. hard scrabble, hard drinking, like New York political and sports reporters. Lupica was there. Um, but yeah, it kind of fell in harder times. Yeah. Harder times. Maybe cricket should start like a tabloid newspaper. That'd be fun. Yeah. I do think there's a space for that on the left that's that's missing. A lot of stories and you get laundered through some uh yeah, yeah, some rags, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, the right's the been side. pretty smart about having like a really entertaining tabloid. And we're just gonna slide like some insane editorial perspective into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's worked very well in the UK and yeah, Australia. Highly effective. Yeah. Uh okay, well, great to be back in studio with you. This is awesome. This I'm is so, so nice. excited to be here. Yeah, it's very nice. Look at these guys, they're beside themselves the joy they look so happy <laughs> i mean if you could see this team here uh, all right talk to you guys next week see ya. pod save the world is a crooked media production the executive producer is michael martinez our producer is jordan waller it's mixed and edited by andrew chadwick Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started.